It's the Autobots versus Napa Know-How. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Who are you? Why are you like this? Like what? Like how you are! I don't know who you are or where you came from. From now on, you do as I do. Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. Our comic this time around is the Transformers number 28, which was originally released on February 17th, 1987, with a May 1987 cover date, and retailed for a dollar. The cover by Ian Aiken shows Blaster and Goldbug getting hit by a tree, with the headline, the mechanic, the mechanic strikes again, and the Autobots strike out. It's a pretty dynamic cover, and one of the ones I actually remembered from my short time collecting this series, although a number of the covers from the Transformers series were pretty dynamic. Anyway, the title of this issue is Mechanical Difficulties, and our creative team is Bob Budiansky, writer, Don Perlin, penciler, Ian Aiken and Brian Garvey, inkers, Janice Chang, letterer, Nell Yamatov, colorist, Don Daly, editor, and Jim Shooter is the editor-in-chief. We open at Portland International Airport at 7.18 p.m., where the villain, known as the Mechanic, is stealing the dish off of one of the air traffic control radio towers. Airport security goes after him, but he and his men get away with the dish. Meanwhile, in a bad neighborhood in Portland, Blaster and Goldbug stake out the Mechanic's headquarters, and two generic-looking 1980s comic book punks try to steal Blaster, but Goldbug takes off on his own. The two punks chase after, but then run into two officers from the Portland Police Department. The two Autobots return to the Ark where Grimlock is trying on crowns. He then admonishes the two of them for coming up empty in their search for the mechanic, and then he gets furious when they try to tell him that they left the garage and they didn't kill the punks. At their police station, the two detectives discuss the case of the search for the mechanic, as well as the rumors about robots that transform into cars. Meanwhile, the mechanic is dealing with a customer who is unsatisfied, and does so by literally picking him up with his giant wrench and throwing him and his car out of the garage and into the water below. At the Ark, Wheeljack figures out how to find the mechanic. When he uses his power booster rod, which is the name of that huge wrench he was using before, it emits a signal. Grimlock then orders Blaster and Goldbug to find the mechanic and bring him back to him. On a country road, the mechanic brings down a tree in front of a tractor trailer that is holding several thousands of dollars worth of computer equipment, not knowing that he's being watched by the two Autobots as well as the police, who have used this truck for bait for their trap. Goldbug and Blaster confront the mechanic while the police close in. The police predictably begin firing on the two robots, which gives the mechanic the opening he needs, and he, fire, he and his guys fire up the power booster rod and pick up the fallen tree and attack both of our heroes, just like he does in the cover. With the Autobots down and the police distracted, the mechanic and his men get on the truck and then head out. Bumblebee and Blaster chase him, 
and the cops chase after them, or at least they try to because the road, well, is icy and they end up running into one another. The mechanic goes back to his headquarters and he holds a meeting of all the big reps from the underworld of the Pacific Northwest. Goldbug and Blaster find him and discover what he's been offering is that he's been offering the crime bosses pseudo-transformers, like something you'd see like in a James Bond car, cars that have secret guns and hidden weapons. Meanwhile, the police approach in helicopters, which the mechanics men spot on the radar, and they also listen in on Goldbug's transmission to Blaster. Goldbug warns Blaster about the mechanics' weapons and the trap that's being set for the police, so Blaster transforms and talks to the cops about the mechanic and his plan. They agree to work with the Autobots and then put their plan into action. That plan starts with Goldbug allowing himself to be captured while one of the cops carries Blaster, who is in radio form and blasting rock music, of course, into the mechanic's hideout. The gangsters want to know what the heck is going on, and the cop pulls out his badge. Then, just before they're about to shoot, Blaster transforms and scrambles the circuits in the tricked-out cars with his electro-scrambler gun. This causes the cars to fire on one another, not the police, and those cops move in and bust the gangsters. The mechanic, however, is not going down without a fight. He's got Goldbug suspended by a magnet, and he's about to use his machines to pull him apart, and then he tries to throw a car at everyone, but is blocked by Blaster's hand. In the end, all the mechanic's men and the gangsters are arrested, although the mechanic does get away. Blaster and Goldbug talk about how this will be considered a failure by Grimlark, but then they decide that instead of heading back to the Ark, they'll head elsewhere. I can't remember if I've said this before, but I've always gotten the impression that these post-Optimus Prime issues of the Transformers, where Grimlock is the leader of the Autobots, are a bit of an odd duck, especially since Grimlock's dialogue is very Hulk smash. And when we first see him in the issue, he's trying on crowns for his role as the new leader. So you have more of the two pop, two of the more popular characters, the new version of Bumblebee and Blaster, who is not just the Autobot opposite of Soundwave, but was a pretty cool toy on his own. He was a they're on a recon mission, and they're going to bring down the mechanic, who I wasn't familiar with, but whom had appeared at least once before, and kind of looks like a Spider-Man villain, to be honest. Although, I guess he works as a Transformers villain, because his whole shtick is to basically weaponize cars. So he's more or less trying to create Transformers from already existing cars. The meeting he has with the Underworld is one of those classic villain meeting with the Underground the Underworld meetings, like you'd see in a Batman comics from time to time. But at least he's... Here, he's not there to double-cross everyone, because that's also the type of things you see in Batman comics. And the plot overall is solid. The police is shooting at the robots, and the mechanics taking advantage of it work very well, because if they don't know much about the Autobots, they're going to treat them as hostile, and this is going to ruin their trap. Then, you've got what is a victory, but at the same time isn't, and Goldbug and Blaster are really unable to figure out if they like their new leader or not. In fact, I think it was the most interesting part of this, how Grimlock is alienating the other Autobots, ones who were very loyal to their former leader and respected him. I only have until about issue number 34 of this series, so I don't know how far along I'll get with that, but we'll see. The art, by the way, continues to be solid. Like I said about the previous issue, it's much better than what we're seeing in the G.I. Joe Transformers series. Perlin's pencils and the inks by Ian Aiken are solid, and the characters are detailed enough for anyone who's a reader to figure out who they are. There was an issue with this in the miniseries. And the action's dynamic, which was also an issue in that miniseries. I like how the cover is repeated in the one panel and fits very well within the story itself. 
Plus, even though Perlin and Aiken drew generic-looking hoods and punks, they at least try to give them facial expressions and personality that go beyond some of the more generic-looking people we've seen in some of these other books. Overall, this felt like an issue that was about both following up on a previous story and bridging the gap between one story and the next, although I'm not entirely sure what those two storylines actually are. The cover is a decent entry point, and I wasn't entirely lost, so it wasn't that hard to follow. And I'm curious as to what happens next with both Mechanic and Goldbug and Blaster. But our next episode won't be Transformers-related. In fact, it won't even be Marvel-related. I'll be switching over to the Distinguished Competition and checking out some Adventures of Superman. But right now, I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast. A new monthly show chronicling the adventures of the JLI era by Keith Giffen and J.M. DeMatteis will be going issue by issue in release order, tackling the core Justice League title, Justice League Europe, and the quarterly book. Along the way, we'll take time out for special episodes covering various spin-offs, cartoon appearances, the infamous TV pilot, and much more. So join me in an ever-changing roster of guest hosts as we celebrate your favorite JLI members, such as... Martian Manhunter. Batman. Dr. Fate Black Canary Fire Ice Maxwell Lord Oberon Captain Marvel Rocket Red Captain Adam Mr. Miracle Guy Gardner Booster Gold Blue Beetle Nort And many, many more. Justice League International Blahaha Podcast Part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network Want to make something of it? So I was looking up at the I was looking at pop culture information and news uh for February of eighty seven. I was trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about in this segment, especially since I know what stories I have going for the next episode and a few episodes down the line. I noticed the movie Over the Top came out on February thirteenth, as did the movie Mannequin. I know I saw both of these movies on video. I probably saw them multiple times. Not only that, Kim Cattrall was one of those actresses that I knew throughout the 80s because she seemed to be in every other 80s comedy that I watched. And that movie had that Starship song, which would be all over the place by the end of the year. Should we talk about Starship for a moment? Or should I take the time to do that on another episode? I think I might go for the latter because to me, Starship represents something that I can't articulate in the limited amount of time I have here. So we'll put a pin in that and say Mannequin was one of those movies I remember seeing at least a few times and yet don't remember being a favorite movie. I think it was just there. But over the top. Oh my god, over the top. What are the odds on Lincoln Hawks? 20 to 1, pal. Real long shot. Hawks, let's go. The world meets nobody halfway. Remember that. I don't have a father, sir. The world has always bet against Lincoln Hawks. This guy's nothing. Why'd you leave us? It won't happen again. What my grandson found, I don't care how you do it, do it. But a winner never listens to the odds. Whatever happens, I want you to stay with him. Where would we end up? Together is all I can guarantee. You ain't got a prayer in Vegas. You never had anything, so you have nothing to lose. All I want to do is hurt him, cripple him, 
Get him off the table. All I care about is you. You're my boy, you understand? The world beats nobody halfway. Now is the time to do for yourself. I love you. Sylvester Stallone, over the top. This is the Sylvester Stallone arm wrestling movie, which Canon Films paid a crap ton of money for. I mean, $25 million, I believe, was what it cost, which was quite a bit for Canon, which was known for making B-movies on the cheap. And it made only half of that, like or just over half of that. I think that the box office grosser over the top was $16 million. The plot of Over the Top, by the way, is that Stallone plays this guy named Lincoln Hawk, who's estranged from his 10-year-old son and has this road trip thing going with the kid and is also going to compete in like the world championship of arm wrestling so that he can win hundred grand and start his own trucking company. I'm sure the plot's a little more complex than that, but really, not by much. There are entire segments of the film that are just montages of people arm wrestling. And I can't for the life of me see why it only made $16 million at the box office. I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on home video much later in 1987 when my friends and I were in this kick of renting anything that was either Schwarzenegger or Stallone related. We'd later expand it to Seagal and Van Damme. But for now, it was just for that this point, there was the big two and maybe Chuck Norris. So you'd think a father-son story that centers around an arm wrestling tournament wouldn't be as cool as, say, Cobra which is what had come out the previous year, or Rambo, which was out in 85 and was still pretty popular by 87. But, oh man, we loved watching Over the Top. Uh, I remember watching it at least seven or eight times that summer. We'd hold arm wrestling competitions at, at our friends' houses, and all of us practiced that, practiced that Stallone move, which was, okay, you got yourself set up in an arm wrestling position than normal, but then you turn your baseball hat backwards because that told your opponent that you made business. And with your baseball cap backwards, you did this thing where you repositioned your fingers on your hand in order to give yourself like more leverage, and then you took over. Now, first of all, the baseball cap thing, like you mean business, so awesome that we could just couldn't cope. Second, that move, I had thought it might be illegal, but I did a quick Google search, and I found a website about competitive arms wrestling. Yes, there is one, because this is the internet, and this is, and, you know, it's the internet. Uh, and this is, I think this is what's called, it, it sounds like what's called the top roll. Uh, the movie's rented further on down the page, and the person on the site says that exercising your right arm using a weight machine while driving a semi might look good on film, but it's not recommended by any sanctioned body of arm wrestling. Go figure. That move was never something that worked for me anyway, and whenever we arm wrestle, I'd do the whole dramatic Stallone thing where I'd try to play like my friend was just about to beat me and then do the move to try to overpower him like Stallone does in the film. But honestly, I don't ever think that ever actually worked, and I usually wound up losing. This fascination with over-the-top at arm wrestling would not last beyond that summer. (laughs) Those repeated viewings of this movie... um, ended actually i honestly i think we spend more time playing sports or army in my friend tom's backyard than anything else still over the top was a kick-ass movie when i was 10 and it had a kick-ass soundtrack which i actually owned on cassette at one point and it's theme song the one that everybody remembers aside from maybe the kenny loggins ballad meet me halfway across the sky is this one winner takes all by sammy hagar So have fun with this. I'm going to play it out the whole thing. And I'll see you all in 
pretty much just a couple of days where I'm going to cover Adventures of Superman number 428. Until then, please send some feedback, leave some comments over at Pop Culture Affidavit or the Facebook group or by emailing me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And as always, thanks for listening. Take care. Choice is yours!